0: We resume our exposition of the book of Hebrews, and we are in chapter 3. This morning I'll read chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was in all his house. For he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. Every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant, for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. Lord, as we continue our worship and seek your face and your word, we pray that and trust that you would speak to us. Lord, give me your grace that I can be clear and accurate and give us Lord, your help to hear with hearts of obedience. May your, heart, may your spirit cleanse our hearts and equip our hearts this morning. We ask this for Christ's sake. Amen. What are some things that, if you drift from them, could cause some problems? What are some things that, if you drift from them, could be dangerous? maybe destructive, or at least unacceptable. I can think of several. Maybe you can think of them in your own mind. If you were to build a bridge and start at point A and go over a river to point B, and with your calculations and those that were building, drifted with those calculations and building, so that the bridge didn't go all the way across, it kind of just went in a diagonal way, and then it ended before it got to the other side, would that be acceptable? The calculations, whoever it calculated, just drifted off, or 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 other workers drifted off. Would that be dangerous? Potentially, it could be. What about an Air Force pilot on an aircraft carrier? I'm not sure what planes they fly now. Are they flying the F-18s? maybe F-18s now, and what if they're landing on an aircraft carrier? You know, it's very precise. They have to come in at a certain angle, a certain degree. What happens if they just decide to just drift? They turn off the engines. You know what? It's all grace! And so they turn off the engines, and they just kind of try to drift onto the aircraft carrier. Would that be acceptable by the commanding officer, or would he say, good job? A lot of lives could be at stake if an Air Force, if a Navy pilot did that. Drifting can be dangerous. It can be destructive. It's possible also it could get you fired. Let's say you were making a wedding cake and you were designing a wedding cake for a couple and you just decided the, the couple had told you exactly what kind of wedding cake they wanted, but you were like, you know, I feel very creative this morning. And so then you just did your own thing. And so you drifted off their instructions... ...and you wanted something more... ...more mod. You know? So you kind of just got red and green... ...red and green frost... ...and you just went... ...just put it, you know, just slapped it on everywhere... ...and said, this is modern art. And for some... ...perhaps they would look at that and go... ...that's just awesome, it's so beautiful so it speaks to my soul but probably for the wedding couple they would be upset and you may not ever have a job at least with them or a couple that knew them ever again because you drifted away from the instructions that were given to you drifting at times can be really bad and and not wise it's the same way, or at least similar, with Christ. If we drift away from Christ, after having made a profession of faith in Him, and then we, in our hearts, begin to drift away, because we really don't care that much more. We're saved by grace, we're kept by grace, which 100% the Bible says, certainly, once saved, always saved. He that began a good work in you will perfect it until that day, Philippians 1.6 but there can be this attitude, this heart where, you know, I, I, Christ doesn't just matter to me as much, and I'm just going to take it easy for a little bit. That's a dangerous place to be in, and we can see this from our text. Even if you were to look at chapter 3 and look at verses 7 through 11, we can see that they, the Israelites even after being delivered from slavery, they went astray in verse 10 and said, they always go astray in their heart, and they did not know my ways as I swore my wrath. They shall not enter my rest. These were the Israelites that were delivered out of bondage in Egypt and saw all these great, fantastic miracles of God. And yet, how many of them entered the promised land? How many of the Israelites that were delivered from bondage, actually entered into that promised land of rest. How many? Two. That's including Moses. Moses didn't enter the promised land. The leader. They shall not enter my rest. So then what I'm saying, that this text is saying, is that drifting away from Christ is not wise and is deadly. Because of verse 6. If we hold fast our confidence and boast of our hope firm until the end. Not that we're saved by our works, but the person that is saved will work. It's not my perseverance that saves me, but if I am saved, I will persevere in Christ. And this passage is bringing that out. And so we have said that this is the theme statement of, of this passage. Drifting away from Christ Jesus is a heart issue. Take care of the heart. It's a heart issue because if you were making that cake and you did your own thing, if you were building a bridge and did your own thing, if you're flying this airplane as a Navy pilot and, and did your own thing, ultimately, in your heart, you're careless. Careless meaning you could care less. You, you didn't really care. And even here in our passage, our passage we have said is really chapter 3, verse 1, all the way down to 4, verse 13. And this passage will give heart treatments to help us to prevent a type of heart decay or to cure heart decay. It's both preventative and therapeutic treatment for our hearts. You can see, even in verse 12 it talks about being careful that we don't have an unbelieving heart. And verse 8 of chapter 3, Do not harden your hearts. Verse 19 of chapter 3, it talks about unbelief. And even the famous passage about God's Word, Hebrews 4, verse 12, it's able to judge, talking about the Word of God. It's able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So what we have said is this passage is dealing with drifting away from God. Going back to chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, because chapter 3, verse 1 starts with, Therefore, Therefore, since Jesus is fully God and He's fully human, therefore, going back to chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, don't drift away, rather consider Jesus. Otherwise, we're going to be like the Israelites that Psalm 95 talks about where we see all kinds of miracles and all these wonders of God and we even partake spiritually and one sense of the things of God. But yet, slowly, we can drift away from that profession that we made because, really, we never embraced Christ truly in our hearts. We embraced a lot of the things that we heard and saw. For example, we could hear the hymns being sung, and be moved by those hymns, and just love it. Maybe say, Amen! But yet, in your heart, your heart hasn't been conquered or captivated by Jesus, but by music and a song. It's not wrong to be moved by a song, but being moved by a song about Christ is not evidence that you're saved. And so God's word in this chapter is very concerned with these Christians that came from a Jewish background, this church, these group of people who are being tempted to desert Christ because they profess to know Jesus, but yet, because of politics, because of their former religion, some are being put in prison, their possessions are being stolen, they're being persecuted, and some are being tempted to feel and to think I I, I came to Christ I I gave up everything and now I'm being persecuted was it really worth it for me to follow Jesus? I was better off before I was a Christian than I am now potentially is what they could have been thinking and feeling and so God's spirit through his word is seeking to shepherd them and first he has said we've seen chapters 1 and 2 Jesus is better than angels, don't worship angels, don't take a refuge in angels, Jesus is superior to angels. And now basically, this section that we we're in, kind of the, the backdrop of it, is the Spirit of God will be saying, Jesus is better than Moses, Jesus is better than Joshua, Jesus is even better than a Sabbath. Colossians chapter 2, verse 16, the Sabbath is a, is a shadow, the reality is Christ. So we saw last week that the first treatment was developing a biblical self-image. We saw that with verse 1, holy brethren and partakers of a heavenly calling. A treatment for our heart is that we have to really understand and realize and accept who we are. And that is that if you're in Christ, you are a saint. You're a saint. God makes you a saint. It's the Work of Christ that makes you a saint, not your work that makes you a saint. That, that's the opposite of the world and even a lot of the church. It's not you that make you a saint. It's God and his work in Christ that makes you a saint. Partakers of a heavenly calling, it's basically that your destination, saints, believers, your destination is is glory. We've talked about that now several times. With a glorious person, Jesus and a glorious place, heaven, and you yourself will be glorified. And then we also, last week, we're talking about the second treatment. In order to help us not to drift away from Christ, but to really take care of our hearts so we stick with Jesus, is we said, right now, think clearly about Jesus. Right now, think clearly about Jesus, how you think about Christ is incredibly important. What you truly believe about Jesus Christ really will determine, after election and the grace of God, will determine your destiny, right? Now, at this point, let me mention this kind of a clarification I've said, drifting away from Christ to Jesus is a hard issue. Take care of your heart. And here in chapter 3, verse 1, it says, consider Jesus. Why am I saying heart? And then here in this point, the second treatment, I'm saying thank clearly. Well, the word here in chapter 3, verse 1, this imperative, consider, it means to think. But when we look at the passage, throughout the passage, many times it mentions heart. Well, we have to understand that the correlation here. The word heart in the Bible is cardia. We get a word, you know, uh, a lot of different words. Cardiology, many. Come from this idea of the heart. Cardia in Greek. And it, but it's not this muscle. And it's not love, a romantic love. It's this idea of heart. It's soul, mind, conscience, will, how you think it's really the end quarter, the headquarters of inner man. Uh, when I was growing up, in the seventies and the early eighties, there were a lot of rockets that were going off from Cape Canaveral. Even with the space shuttle, they operated in a similar way. And at Houston, that was called what? The space shuttle and the Saturn rockets—they were launched at Cape Canaveral, Florida. But at Houston, that was the mission control. Mission control. So your heart in the Bible is mission control. It's the the real you, how you think, what you desire, your your conscience, your will, your soul, all those different inner components. That is your heart. And then here, in chapter 3, verse 1, it's talking about a specific dynamic of that inner man. That is this, remember what we said, it's this diligent, uh, clear, urgent, personal, very cogent, accurate deliberation on who Jesus is. And we said right now, if you remember, because of the, the grammar and even the word itself brings out this idea of right now and even the context of this passage, it's important because if you don't consider Jesus, chapter 2, verse 3. You're going to neglect a great salvation. So right now, you have to think actively, clearly. I would add, submissively about Jesus. Submissively, because it talks about he's the apostle and high priest of our confession. The idea that there is a, a body of truth, uh, God's word, God's word teaches these things about Jesus. Again, Romans 10, 9. If we confess Jesus as Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised Him from the dead, we shall be saved. And so there is a submissiveness in this confession. That's why Colossians 2.6 says, Therefore, if you have received, or since you've received Jesus as Lord, walk in Him. That is that this confession is not just a verbal, Jesus is real, but rather it's more like Psalm 2.12, Kiss the Son, Lord, I, I, I trust you, and there is this acquiescence in my faith to him. And so, all of this is part of this considering Jesus. That is, it's not just this dry, intellectual, I'm going to read a theological book about Jesus. I did this week read some writings. ...by Carl Barth. Have you ever read Writings by Carl Barth? I would not recommend reading him. Especially his Church Dogmatics. A book that he wrote on preaching is okay... ...but his book on Church Dogmatics... ...it's almost nonsensical and contradictory. But he and his books were very popular... ...for many, 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 many years and impacted Europe and America for a long time. And you could read that, and he would even talk about Christ. And you can read it, and read it, and read it. And then say, you know, I've read so much about about Jesus. I've read so much about Christ. We're not talking about that kind of study. Or even if you were to read Charnock, and maybe read 100 pages on Charnock, and then step back and go, man, I've considered Jesus... Tell me about it. Jesus is God. Amen. But what did you read? Tell me about, or maybe you read Owen. Have you ever read Owen on Christ? I love John Owen. But after I read one of his, I had to read, and I told you this, his book on temptation of sin. I had to read it six times, truly, before I understood it. Because he's just a bad writer. Great theologian. He's a bad writer. What I'm trying to say is here when it says consider Jesus, it's not just that you get entertained by reading. Uh, You can hear a good sermon. Maybe Piper preaches this powerful sermon. Boom! And you're like, yes, yes, yes. But maybe it lasts an hour, right? It lasts an hour. You're excited an hour, then it's gone. And you're wondering what happened. I was so moved by that sermon. Well, this idea of considering is not that. I think it's more what we learned yesterday, men, at the men's breakfast from George Mueller. I think it's more like what he did. So let me read to you what he did. And again, I'm talking about chapter 3, verse 1, this word where it says, consider. What does that really mean? Consider Jesus. Listen to George Mueller. You know who he was? He was, the, he was a pastor around the time of Spurgeon and had several orphanages, and he's really known for his prayer life. That's what he's really known for. He raised all of his money. I forgot how many millions of dollars it was, but he did it through prayer. Well, here's what he said about what was important for him to get started in his day. Quote, I saw more clearly than ever that the first great and primary business to which I ought to attend every day was to have my soul happy in the Lord. I saw that the most important thing I had to do was to give myself to the reading of the Word of God and to meditation on it. What is the food of the inner man? Not prayer, but the Word of God. Now, let me stop. What did he mean? He's known for his prayer. But he's saying what he's focused on is that he wants to go to the Word and focus on what God is saying to him based upon what the objective, external Word of God says. Not prayer, but the Word of God. And not the simple reading of the Word of God. So that it only passes through our minds, just as water runs through a pipe. But considering what we read, pondering over it and applying it to our hearts not just as let me just read it again not just as water runs through a pipe but considering what we read pondering over it and applying it to our hearts I, I think that is getting to the idea of this imperative and we said last week it's not optional it's an imperative right now with diligence and concentration and deliberation considered Jesus means more than just thinking deeply about him. You could think deeply about him and be inaccurate. But to think accurately and clearly and submissively about Jesus towards application. Towards saying yes Jesus. Yes Lord. Yes. Yes Lord. Not oh I thought about him period. But yes Lord. Yes because he is my I've said Jesus is Lord. I think that's the idea of this consider Jesus as Lord. And then last week we, we looked at the different ways specifically now that this text says we're to think about Jesus. And we said he's your best missionary because the word for the apostle is apostolos, which means sent one, somebody that was sent. John three sixteen. John three sixteen, God sent his son. Then we also said, he's your best representative, high priest. Now, also then, as we continue to look at this passage, it says in verse 2, he was faithful. So I think we can see it this way. Consider Jesus. We've talked about that. We did a lot of review. But then... Specifically, he's your very best missionary. He's your very best representative. I think you could say it this way, too. Looking at verses 3 through 6. He is by far your very best minister. He is by far your very best minister. By minister... What I mean is Moses was a prophet, he ministered the word of God, but he was also a national leader. So in England, they have ministers, right, that are national leaders, is that right? We have representatives. Uh, Moses was a leader spiritually and nationally. So I, I think one of the connections we can make with this passage is understanding that jesus by far is our your best minister whether that's spiritually or physically whether it's as a christian type of prophet pastor or whether as a national or state or city leader by far by an infinite amount jesus is the best Because he's faithful. If you look at verse 10, it says he was faithful to him. It's talking about Jesus. Then verse 5 says, now Moses was faithful. And verse 6 says, but Christ was faithful as a son. So this passage here is continuing on out of where it says consider Jesus. And there's three ways specifically to consider Jesus. The best missionary ever. The best representative ever. And the very best minister you could ever have ever. You know, perhaps... Paul planted this church. Perhaps it was Peter. And like Moses, they died and they're gone. Maybe that was one of the issues. And so this passage is encouraging them. But you have Jesus. You have Jesus. I think that that's what's going on in this passage. So let's explain this some and then we'll look at some application... Let me summarize. I've done it some, but let me be crystal clear. Verses 3 through 6, you can see that in your notes. To summarize it, Jesus Christ was faithful to his mission like Moses was to his mission. But Jesus Christ in such a way to receive much more honor because he's the creator, he's God the Son, and he's the, the ruler, the authority. 3 through 6 is saying, consider Jesus, How? He's your very best minister ever, whether it's spiritual, whether it's a physical leader. He is by far the the best leader that, that there ever will be. Why? Because he's the creator, he's the son, and he is in charge. Now to clarify this, if you look At verse 2, it says, he was faithful to him who appointed him as Moses was in all his house. Moses was was faithful. That that doesn't mean that Moses was perfect. If you look at verse 2, it's comparing the faithfulness of Jesus to Moses. But it's not saying that Moses was this prophet that never sinned. Jesus never sinned. We see that in Hebrews 4, 15. It says he was without sin. We know that Moses sinned he was a sinner, but we know that he sinned toward the end of his life, and so he wasn't allowed into the, the promised land. But he was a godly man. Perhaps the best prophet, maybe Elijah and Moses, but God gives his verdict of, of Moses in the book of Numbers. Look at Numbers chapter 12. Numbers chapter 12, verse 7. You can see God's verdict about Moses. Numbers chapter 12 verse 7. And let me start at verse 6. He said, Hear now my words. If there is a prophet among you, I the Lord shall make myself known to him in a vision. I shall speak to him. I shall speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my household. What is household? Even it talks about in Hebrews chapter 3. It talks about he was faithful. Moses... In all his house, chapter 3, verse 2, his is is God. It's talking about God's house. Well, God's house was Israel. Moses and God's house, Israel, was faithful. Now, not absolutely perfect every single day, all the time. That would only be Jesus. But as far as the prophet goes, he was very, very faithful. Now, the Jews held him in And high esteem, held Moses in high esteem. And so the Spirit of God here, I think, is being wise. And that's an understatement. The Spirit of God is wise all the time and and skillful. And not immediately saying Jesus was sinless, Moses was a dirty, rotten, cockroach, rascal, sinner. The Spirit of God is being wise and it's saying, yes, Moses was faithful. The Old Testament says that. He was a faithful man. Also, historically, it's important to approach this in a way that has wisdom because the Jews, not all of them, but some of them, during the second temple era, which would have been this time, the first temple was destroyed. Now there's a second temple being built. And, for the most part, Judaism now has turned away from God. And for at least a sizable group of them, they held Moses to be more important, more powerful than even angels. So when you look then at this letter to the Hebrews, first the Spirit of God says Jesus is better than angels because he was fully God, yet he was fully man. Well, there were some Jews that would say... Yes, so what? But better than angels is Moses. And so now now the Spirit of God is saying, Moses was faithful. As faithful as Moses was, there was somebody that was more faithful and worthy of more glory. And that's Jesus Christ. That's really what is going on in this passage. So the Spirit of God is saying to them, and even to us, that no one should go AWOL and desert Christ because they thought that Moses was more sufficient and more superior to Jesus. And I repented and I came to Jesus and now I'm being persecuted. If I, if I would have stayed with Jesus, I mean with, with Moses, then I probably wouldn't be persecuted like I am now. So the Spirit of God is saying, no, Jesus Christ is superior to angels. He's superior and infinitely more superior and infinitely more sufficient than Moses or angels. You don't need Moses, you need Jesus. That's what the Spirit of God is saying to these believers. Now, to get even more particular with this passage... Go back up to chapter 3, verse 2, and my New American Standard Bible it says he was faithful to him who appointed him. But in my margin, if I follow the one I have in verse 2 in italics, in my margin it says being faithful. Verse 2 really is not a brand new sentence, it's not a brand new clause. If it helps, it's a participle, it's an adjective. Going back up to Jesus. You see it says, consider Jesus the apostle, the high priest of our confession. Number three is basically the one who is faithful to him. That's how the Greek is written. In English, that could be a little bit awkward. And so they've tried it to make it easier to understand. Because the sentence then would to be too long. And Greek, you can have really, 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 really long sentences. <laughs> In English, that becomes... Difficult. But here it's the idea that Jesus, he is the apostle, he's the high priest, he's the one that was faithful to the one who called him, who appointed him, that is to his father. God the Father sent God the Son, and God the Son was as faithful as Moses is. Jesus deserves even more glory. And it's important to understand that because verses 2 through 6 are all talking about the faithfulness of Jesus and why he deserves more glory and more honor. That's why I said that, yes, a way to think about Jesus, to consider him, he's the very best missionary ever, very best representative ever, by far, by far the best leader, minister ever. Why did I say that? Because I'm trying to outline, to underscore Jesus is more faithful than any leader, spiritual, or national prophet, priest that ever, ever lived, by far, Jesus. And this whole passage is talking about that. Now further, you can see then in the text where it says, For he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. It's the only reason why we should consider Jesus more. More than angels and more than Moses. You won't find anywhere in the New Testament what says, think a lot about Moses. Hebrews 11 talks about Moses, but at the end of talking about all the heroes of the faith, it says to fix our eyes where? On Jesus. And it gives this illustration in verse 3. Jesus, he... He's counted as worthy of more glory, of more honor, of more value, of your worship, of your attention than Moses. Why? Well, think about a builder of a house. Think about this, this building here. You know, at one point, I'm not sure how long ago, let's say 30 years ago, this was just a field. Did all of a sudden somebody drive by one day and there was a building here? Did the timber and the wood just fall off the trees, and the rocks rise up out of the ground? And on their their own, they decided the plan to all come together. And somehow they had these mechanisms of energy within them, and then came together and they formed this building. Then after that, the lights came, and they all made itself. Is is that what happened? No. Of course not. And so this verse, verses 3 and 4, is saying that the builder of the house has more honor than the house. The one who built a building, of course, has more intelligence of design and creativity and and power. It didn't create itself. Somebody else created it. And verse 4 is saying that, for every house is built by someone. The house just didn't make itself. Israel didn't make itself. And in the New Testament, the church is the house of God. Did the church make itself? No, the church was bought and created by Jesus. Every house is built by someone. The builder of all things is God. Who builds the church? God. Who causes the church to grow? God. Who saved Israel? Was it Moses? Joshua? Elijah? David? That was God. And that's what the Spirit of God is saying to these believers, and some of them have professed faith in Christ. Some of them, perhaps it seems, were not believers, and some were, but they were all being tempted to some degree to, I don't know if it's worth it to follow Jesus. It's really difficult. Maybe some were just being more carefree. But for a degree of them, they were being tempted. Apparently, it seems, in this context, to be tempted with Moses. I I know Moses, and that's what I'm familiar with. And I was politically, and in terms of my possessions, I was better off with, with Moses. So the Spirit of God is seeking to minister to these people, saying Jesus deserves more honor because Moses didn't create Israel. Somebody else created the house of God, Israel. And and that was God. And even for you and I, for believers, in the church of God, who created the church? Paul? Did, Did Paul create the church? Augustine? Calvin? Did Calvin create the church? If there was no Calvin, would the church exist today? Did Spurgeon create the church? Martin, Larry, Jones? Did any of these men, like Moses, these great men of God, create the church? And so the Lord is really seeking to help them and us understand that the one that is essential is the builder. And that's God, that's Jesus. Jesus. That's really what this text is saying, again, to them and to us. Now, in verse 5, you see in your text, it says, Now Moses was faithful. And then verse 6 says, But Christ was. And In italics, my version says, was faithful, because that's not really there in the text, but it is implied. Verse 5 and verse 6, perhaps it doesn't come out as fully, as it does in a Greek text, but you have what's called a men day construction. Uh, men is M E N, day is just D E. That is, you see in verse 5 where it says now, and verse 6 where it says but. You can have many different words and phrases for those different terms, but it specifically uses this combination of men day, which you could. I probably would bring it out, but it is a little bit more of an interpretation than just a translation. You could translate it this way. Now, on one hand, Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant. But on the other hand, Christ was faithful as a son. And that brings out a little bit more of the force of the contrast that's here. You you do see the contrast that's here, but it's a little bit even more... Forceful. And it's saying, Moses was faithful, yes, truly. As a servant. As a servant, he served faithfully. But Jesus, as a son, served faithfully. There's a difference between a a person that's a servant serving, they're doing what they should do, what they are required to do, but you have a son who is not a servant, but he serves faithfully, that one deserves more glory and more honor. That's what verses 5 and 6 are saying. And then in verse 5, it says, "For talking about Moses, for a testimony of those things which are to be spoken later. This is talking about in Deuteronomy 18, where Moses is writing down, he's a prophet, he's writing down God's word, what talks about a prophet is to come, Matthew 18, 15 through 18. That prophet is referring to to Christ. I'm talking about here in verse 5, where it says, for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. Moses gave the law, but the law had prophecies in there. Deuteronomy 18. Uh, Deuteronomy 28. But even the book of Leviticus is a type of prophetic literature because it is by types and images prophesying of the work of Jesus Christ. So this verse here, verse 5, is saying Moses was faithful. On on one hand, Moses was faithful to do what he was called by God to do. And that is to be a prophet and even to speak about the future. But ultimately, what was it that Moses was speaking about? Christ. Christ. So who's greater? The fulfillment of the one that prophesied the fulfillment. The fulfillment. And that's Jesus. So Moses, Deuteronomy 18, book of Leviticus, different parts, really. Even Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, right? The Proto-Evangelium, that seed of the woman. Moses wrote actually much about Christ. Jesus is the fulfillment of what the servant wrote about. So who is more superior, Moses or Jesus? Jesus, the Son. Even if you go back and look at verse 6 and 5, it says Moses was faithful in all his house. That is all God's house. But look at verse 6. But Christ, as a Son, over his house. Look back at verses 5 and 6. Moses was faithful to God in his house. In Israel, Moses was faithful. But was Moses the leader? No. Moses died, and then there was Joshua. Then there was somebody else after Joshua left. Christ was faithful as a son over. That's the distinction. But on one hand, but on the other hand, there's two distinctions. Servant, son, and in and over. Christ is the, the ruler. He's the head of his house. He's the head of the church. King of kings, Lord of lords. So, this passage is telling these beloved people, at least outwardly, that had called in the name of the Lord, and most of them are saved. Some are not, some are, are really struggling. He's telling them. You should be more impressed with Jesus Christ than with Moses, because Jesus Christ is God. He's the ruler of the church. He's the son. And even he made Moses. But the builder of all things is God. All things would include Moses, and Israel, and the church. Why are you so inclined to be enraptured and captivated... By Moses. So then, how, then application. When is the last time you got in your car and you rubbed your Moses idol? Do you have a Moses idol hanging from your mirror? If you live in India, or I guess now, California, here too, and, and different parts of the U.S., Beloved and dear people, I'm not making fun of my Indian friends, but if I got into a taxi cab or rickshaw, some of my Indian friends that weren't believers or followers of Christ, they would have Ganesh, elephant God, hanging from their, their mirror and want to get a, a blessing from that, to ward off demons. Well, we, do you treat Moses that way? Do you have a statue of Moses? And you're, maybe you have it in, in your bedroom, Maybe if I come into your house and I, you know, I go through the front door and I turn around, do you have a picture of Moses here? Maybe, you know, doing a Catholic thing like this, blessing you. Do you have that in your house? I would say most of us don't. I'm pretty sure nobody here has ever prayed to Moses. I would imagine that many of you go through years where you don't think about Moses. Right? Oh, Moses. But these people did. So then, how, how can we connect with this? Well, they were tempted, it seems, by understanding this passage and history, that they were being tempted to have Moses as a refuge. They were so impressed with, with Moses that it was they were being tempted to, to think, if I have Moses in my life, I can continue on. But if I don't have Moses, how can I go forward? I think, though we're not inclined to follow Moses, can you be so impressed with a person or a movement that unless you are following this person and unless you are following this movement, then then it's really hard for you to continue on in Christ? I told you, I think last week or a couple of weeks ago, I used to fish in the Gulf, and the Gulf not not always, especially when a hurricane comes. But the Gulf, is, you can go miles and miles and miles and miles out into the Gulf of Mexico. And there are places where it's hardly deep at all. You can get out and walk in sandbars. And we, we were way out there fishing. And I just, yeah, I wanted to stay put because there was a, an eight-foot hole. They used to uh, do dive bombing, I think, in World War II. And so there was a hole down here where a bomb had, and there were grouper sea bass in there. And so I wanted to stay right there and just fish that hole. And so there was just like this tiny anchor. And I didn't think there could be much of a current because it's so shallow. So I I just tossed in this tiny anchor, little tiny anchor that we had used for a lake before. I, I just tossed this tiny anchor and just started fishing. Well, pretty soon the whole boat began to drift. And that little tiny anchor wasn't able to control the boat, and the boat would continue to to drift. The anchor was small. It wasn't a, a glorious, gigantic anchor that could hold the whole boat there. And I think this passage, basically, what it's saying is, you're going to drift away if you use Moses as an anchor for your life. No offense to Moses, but he's a tiny anchor. He's a tiny anchor. And at times, we can place our hope on our refuge in Christian leaders and Christian movements, and we 're placing our hope in a tiny anchor a teeny teeny tiny anchor because you 're impressed with a teeny tiny person and in, in light of Jesus Christ so to help us to understand this to to consider Jesus, just three questions that will be brief. First, to help yourself think clearly and accurately about Jesus Christ so you and I don't drift away, answer this question. Number 1, who do you need to go forward in Christ? Who do you need to go forward in Christ? Do you need a a spouse? Do you need kids? Do you need your current pastor, a former pastor? Do you need John MacArthur to live forever? John Piper? Have you ever thought, what would become of a church if this pastor dies? I asked a certain uh, group of elders of a certain large church, you know of the church of which I speak, I asked not the pastor but some of the elders there what's going to happen when this pastor dies do you have somebody else that will a plan for somebody else to come and be pastor Don't ever don't ever talk that way Don't talk that way Sometimes we can think that that a church or our Christianity or our very Christian lives are built on a human man Or a movement. But those are tiny anchors. And when we do that, we're asking for trouble. In this passage, it does talk about death. Again, chapter 2. Verse 14, that through death he might render powerless some who had the power of death, and might free those who, through fear of death, were subject to slavery all their lives. We have to be careful about thinking, I need this Christian leader. I need this person always in my life. Otherwise, I can't go on. Well, that person could die. I told you that, was it a year ago, a year and a half ago, my neighbor went to Happy Donuts, got a donut, walked outside, took a bite of his donut, slipped at his head and died. And they still have the donut in the freezer. Well, I just found out two days ago, my neighbor across the street suddenly died. 42 years old. Suddenly died. He's dead. He claimed to know Christ. I I pray that he's a believer. I, I bring that up to say, this passage talks about death. I'm not trying to be morbid. But people die all the time, and Christian leaders die all the time. We have to have our eyes fixed on who? On Christ. I can go on, not because of any human person. I can go on because of Jesus. And that's what this passage is saying to these beloved believers. Who do you need to go on? You need Jesus. You should love people, but you need Jesus. Love people, don't need people. You need Jesus. I need Jesus. Number two, second question. To help yourself think clearly and accurately about Jesus Christ so you don't drift away, answer this question. Who's going to fail you first? Who's going to sin against you first? A Christian leader? A Christian minister? A national leader? Or Jesus Christ? And again, I'm focusing on Ministers and leaders, because the contrast is between, the comparison is between Moses, one of the leaders of Israel ever, and Jesus Christ. That's why I'm asking these questions this way. And we're to to consider Jesus. So who's going to fail you, forsake you? Who's going to fall into sin first, Jesus Christ or a Christian leader? The Bible says that Jesus, there was no sin found in him, that he was sinless. He was so sinless, he had to take your sin from you and put it upon himself. Jesus Christ will never sin, he has never sinned, and he would never fail us, ever. How many Christians have, professing Christians, have fallen away from their faith because a leader that they loved fell. There are many Christian leaders that have fallen, and there are even people that have come to this church and other churches that have fallen away from Christ. Could it in part be because they had their hopes set on a certain movement, or they had their hopes and their refuge in a certain man that professed Christ? Maybe even that man was a believer, is a believer, and, and fell into sin. And had to step down and do something else. But individuals had their hope, their refuge in that person. And when that person was crushed, they were crushed. This happens. Brothers and sisters, you you don't need another human. You, You need Christ. We can learn from people. We want to learn From our our teachers and from our pastors and from our parents and from our spouses and from one another. And it says in chapter 3, verse 13, but encourage one another day after day. We can learn from one another, but we don't worship others. We don't put others on on a pedestal. We don't need others. And in that sense, what I need is Jesus. A third question. To help yourself think clearly and accurately about Jesus Christ so you don't drift away. Ask and answer this question. Are you more impressed by a fallen human or Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory? Or maybe I can ask it this way. Do you know what a fanboy is? Fanboy? Are you a fanboy or a fangirl? girl? You know, I enjoy football, and I can, others, maybe, you can be fanatical about a sports team. Ah, go Bucks, go Tampa Bay. But even within the church, even within Christendom, it's almost like you need to be wearing merch. You know, mer- is it called merch or mer- mer- merchandise? T-shirts, really big. Do you have a certain t-shirt that has your favorite Christian preacher on here? You know, it's back to First Corinthians chapter 1. I'm of this preacher. This is the best preacher. No, it's this this is the best movement. This is the best church. And it's really sick. And it's really sad. And here the spirit of God is saying to this church, the best minister, the best leader, infinitely better than anybody else that you need is Jesus Christ. We can put leaders on a pedestal and that pedestal breaks and if it breaks and you're underneath that pedestal, it's going to break you and hurt you. Be thankful for, for the leaders. That, you know, Be thankful for all these wonderful, gifted, so gifted, and even faithful ministers that, that God raises up. Be thankful for them. But you don't need them. You need Jesus. And I think that's what this passage is saying to these people and to you and I this morning. Be thankful for people. Learn from people. Love people. But Jesus, he is by far the very best minister, leader that there ever was, ever is, or ever will be. And so we need him. We need to focus on him, worship him, give him glory, and spend more and more time with him. How you relate to Jesus Christ will determine, underneath God's grace and sovereign election, underneath those truths, how you relate to Jesus Christ will determine, really, your eternal destiny and, as a believer, the health of your Christianity. Being a Christian and not flying away from Christ and continuing on with Christ. It can be difficult, but it's not complex. It can be difficult, but it's not complex. Get close to Jesus. That's what the Spirit of God is saying to these people and what He's saying to you and I. Take care of your heart by staying close to Christ. Marveling in Him will mash the temptation to desert Christ. Marveling at who Jesus Christ is will mass, like mass potatoes, <laughs> the temptation to drift away from Christ. May God bless His word. Lord, we thank you for your word. Jesus, you are all that we need. You are the way, the truth. You are the life. You are the Lamb of God. You're the lion of God. You are the great I am. You are our true shepherd. You are our wonderful redeemer. And Lord, we even pray that one day you would return soon that we could see you, our Lord, our Savior, our King face to face. May we be thankful for people and learn from them and seek to love them. But ultimately, Lord, help us to see that we need you more and more. We give you praise and pray that you'd be glorified. Amen.